on this episode of The Kinked Wire. Many people are sort of viewing it as either, either it's an either or, either you have an OBL or you're tied to a diagnostic department. And from my perspective, it's like, it's actually synergistic to have both. <laughs> Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SR Publications. You can learn more on our website, starweb.org slash kinkedwire. On this episode, host interventional radiologist Dr. Warren Kraykov speaks with Dr. James Brink, chair of radiology at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Brigham and Women's Hospital, about whether IR and DR are stronger together, what brought him to support IR services in his radiology practice, the SIR and ACR town hall on the topic, and more. So really glad to have, we were just chatting, uh, but really glad to have Jim Brink here um, uh, talking about, I think, an issue that touches all of us in, in radiology. Certainly it affects IR, but I think it affects all DRs as well. And that's sort of the, I don't know, special relationship, if that's a way to put it. I know that's what the the, the British and American relationship is, but the special relationship that exists now between IR and DR. And there was a great town hall uh, sort of jointly between the ACR and the SIR back in December. And I, and I know, uh, Jim, you played a, a very prominent role in that. What I'd like to do, if possible, is just sort of see what your thoughts were coming off the heels of that and, you know, what your reaction to that was, and then maybe get into this a little bit more. Sure. Thank you. No, it was a, a really interesting and educational experience for me to both prepare for the town hall and kind of get my head in the in the weeds on some of the issues that our IR colleagues are facing. And and I, I really valued hearing the perspectives of so many different individuals. So, you know, before I begin, let me say that um, there's no right answer to the, these uh, thorny issues, but they certainly are, are worth um, giving thoughtful consideration and to them. I also kind of came away thinking that it's to some degree probably the best way to approach any of these problems is just to think about it from the patient's perspective, what's best for our mm-hmm. patients. And that varies depending on the circumstance and even the locale, the the, the local politics can really affect what's best for the patient. Uh, and mm-hmm. so approach it from that perspective, it usually uh, will help us keep, the, keep our compass pointed in a, a direction that things that may try and deflect it We'll, we'll kind of have a, a North Star, uh, you know, that's common among all of us. Now, for example, when we were talking about um, the credentialing question about whether IRs who practice in an OBL should be given privileges at a nearby hospital or not, you know, my perspective is it depends. <laughs> if, uh, if there's a, if from a patient's perspective, if there's a procedure that's not being covered by the, the, the practice that has the, quote, exclusive or semi-exclusive contract or whatever the nature of the contract, then from a patient's perspective, it would not be appropriate for us to deny the opportunity for uh, patients to benefit from a um, from that procedure. And we should provide um, viewing it from that perspective or say it slightly differently. If we or our family members needed that procedure, wouldn't we want the opportunity to, to have, uh, or, or if the best practitioner, or however you want to put it. Um, right. I do think also, just while we're on that topic, that it's important for any practitioner who may be coming in, an interventionalist who's coming in to seek privileges, that there's some understanding of just the challenges of scheduling and, and on-call responsibilities and really sharing in the, the burdens of the practice as well as the opportunities. And I think on the podcast I referenced uh, an experience I had many years ago in which um, uh, we did uh, allow a practitioner, an interventional radiologist, to share privileges at uh, this was a, when I, back when I was at Yale uh, from quite a long time ago. And it, it was a symbiotic relationship, but that individual was well known to the group and also um, 
I think, as I recall, helped share in some of the more burdensome aspects of the practice in, in exchange. That's a great point. So there are, you know, opportunities in a way so that, um, you know, depending on, I think, as you're suggesting uh, what your practice is like, maybe call is really burdensome for the IRs. And if you collaborate with somebody sort of on the outside, um, you can, you know, symbiotically, as you said, work together to try to help not only reduce that burden, but then the outside IR gets privileges and gets what he or she wants in terms of, you know, access to the hospital and such. I'm, I'm curious as well, given your, your sort of position as uh, head of radiology at uh, the MGH as well as at the Brigham, you know, obviously very large institutions, academically based institutions. How are you swinging that? <laughs> if I can pick your brain, how are you swinging sort of the, um, I, the, you know, even just the staff IRs at those institutions and how they meld or, or mix into the sort of general population, if you will, of, of DRs? <laughs> Yeah, actually, uh, thank you for asking. In fact, we actually have three three radiology departments. There's the Brigham Department, the Mass General Department, and then a third department we call our Enterprise Service Group, which is a community-based department that um, services many of our community hospitals. And um, to give a sense of size, they, the Brigham and the MJTs have about 120, roughly, radiologists, and the, the Enterprise Service Group, uh, um, r- roughly uh, 60 radiologists, so it's about half the size of the other two. You know, we function as three separate departments with uh, opportunities to help the, the, the departments helping each other out to serve our enterprise as needed. And um, that's, you know, the degree of integration within our enterprise, primarily financial integration among the hospitals we serve is still an evolution. And that's similar evolution uh, still of how our departments relate to each other. But the, the departments certainly do help each other. And that's true in IR as well. So we have, even though there's three separate IR groups, if you will, in these three departments, um, there's definitely cross-pollination uh, to help meet the needs of the system. And I'm without giving in, in specific examples beyond the scope of the, right. the, the podcast, but uh, there's a, a good a good bit of that that goes on. Um, and we work out some of the finances just on the back end um, to make sure the groups are kept whole for those those arrangements. And may, maybe if I might um, speak to it a little bit more, maybe that was a topic that came up on the podcast was more about... Um, what about OBLs at a practice like this? And we do have um, a very successful OBL uh, within the MGH uh, uh, department uh, that we're looking to um, now replicate in, across our catchment area that may well involve the Brigham or potentially even the ESG, but really a very successful OBL arrangement. And that's perhaps a bit unique. Um, Many academic centers may not have an, an OBL uh, IR lab, right. if you will, but we definitely have... Um, a physician licensed facility. We have three physician licensed facilities for uh, the MGH department, um, and in one of our larger ones in Waltham, Massachusetts, is where we have we've we've started a um, an IR practice as part of that, and um, and so the the technical revenue from that practice accrues to the the MGPO department, which is the Mass General mm-hmm. Physicians Organization Department, which is our our physicians um, physician practice, and that's in concert with a very large diagnostic um, practice there as well. Um, I guess my point is that simply that they don't need to be distinct from each other, uh, meaning that um, I, I kind of got the sense on the podcast that many people are sort of viewing it as either, either it's an either or, either you have an OBL or you're tied to a, to a diagnostic department. And from my perspective, it's like 
it's actually synergistic to have both <laughs> because yeah. in that practice, um, it's a busy um, multidisciplinary practice that we provide Im lots of imaging, but we also provide interventional services. And it's the combination, the cons being able to offer the consummate product to all the other practitioners in the in the buildings that are right there that I think puts us in a very strong position. And um, uh, in fact, uh, that IR practice now is is going gangbusters, and that's why we need more. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're looking to see is there ways we can expand in different catchment areas to build more opportunity. And our hospitals are, are, are very synergistic with that because we're busting at the seams in the hospitals too. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say uh, from the model you described, there, there must be a real sort of uh, bilateral sending of patients so that, um, you know, you can, if there's a, a patient who may be, the procedure may just be too complex for the OBL setting, you can streamline them right into whichever hospital is appropriate. And, you know, obviously, if there are things that really the patient does not need to be in the hospital, using up hospital sources and so on, you, you've got the off-ramp of, of the OBL. It sounds like a, a really, like you said, synergistic and great relationship. Um, question about that. So the IRs who are staffing the outpatient facilities, are they also, do they, they have privileges at, at the main hospitals as well? Sure. No, they, they're just rotating out there. It's just part I of see. their, so they might be here at MGH today and they might be covering that place tomorrow. And yeah. Got it. That's a, that's a really interesting approach to this because lots of times I, I have worked in the OBL setting myself in the past. Um, it can be challenging um, if you don't have the sort of, I don't know, academic muscle, if you will, supporting that where you've got a built-in uh, structure with, with large hospitals uh, to support you. It can be, um, I don't know, sort of uh, maybe feeling like you're swimming against the current a little bit. You know, and I think maybe that gets to your point that you mentioned earlier of, um, you know, wh what's best for the patient? Where where will the patient best get the procedure um, and, and and so on and so forth? But that's a, that's a really intriguing approach. It, it will be interesting, I think, to see, obviously, as you pointed out, uh, your institutions are of a certain size. It'd be interesting to see if that can be sort of uh, scaled to other uh, hospitals and other OBL practices throughout the country, um, because it does sound like a, a good middle ground in a way where, uh, first and foremost, the patient gets what they need and, you know, everybody else is sort of taken care of. I, I tend to think that, um, in, in, at the risk of seeing generalization, that one, th one advantage of the, um, the Mass General Brigham Health System is that the physicians, the hospitals, everybody rolls up to the same corporate structure, whereas many academic medical centers the physicians roll up to a university or medical school that's distinct from mm -hmm. hospital practice. And I think those are more challenging to navigate um, that kind of harmonious relationship between an OBL and a hospital-based practice um, when they actually roll up to different corporate entities. Agreed. Yeah, because, you know, there's, there's sort of a more shared win, I guess, perhaps, if that's the way to put it. Yeah, yeah stated slightly differently. If you look at our hospital, our health system, we've got lots of hospitals. We've got three physicians organizations with three departments of radiology and so forth. And they, since they all roll up to one big bucket <laughs> called National yeah, Brigham, right. you know, it's just another business unit within this bucket. That, you know, we want to cheer all our business units on. And so one additional benefit of the OBL and our physician licensed practices is that we are um, 
lowering the, the cost of care in the community, which the state of Massachusetts mm -hmm. is on our backs to do because um, uh, there's a Massachusetts is a, is a bit unique in the uh, among the states in the union in that there's a uh, mandate to keep the the cost of care below a certain uh, threshold each year, and um, the health policy commission of the state. We recently actually referenced our use of the LBLs as an um, important element of our ability to control the cost of care in the state of Massachusetts. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I think again, getting some of those. Um, potentially very expensive procedures out of the hospital that don't need to be done in the hospital, I would think that would be appealing to both payers and the state, uh, you know, as, exactly. as you said. Right. Yeah. So it's a kind of a win-win all around. Right. Right. No, that's really good. Um, and then how about to, you know, sort of inclusive as well of the question of OBLs, just the sort of uh, relationship between IR and DR in general. You know, sometimes you hear, I don't know, grumbling, if that's the right word, from either side of, of that aisle. Um, and I don't know, it sounds like you've really sort of had everybody meet in the middle. How, how did you go about sort of bridging that gap? I understand you've got the academic muscle behind you, but how else did you get, you know, everybody on board? Yeah, I think that um, maybe one of the concepts that I, again, that I picked up on at the podcast, to, to your point, had to do with um, practices that um, are insisting that the IR practice be a profit center for the practice uh, is where it gets sticky. And so, you know, from my perspective, departments of radiology work best if they are not so uh, RVU driven at the divisional level, um, because there's definitely divisions that are going to be lower than others. Uh, not to pick on any other, any specific, uh, uh, especially they're all important. But if you're going to be doing GI fluoro all day, well, it's unlikely that you're going to be uh, on the the positive side of that equation. And um, right. and if you're doing IR procedures all night, you know that's probably also you're not going to be on the positive side of that equation. And yet it all adds together to to provide a consummate product, if you will, which is image-guided imaging and intervention is how what we what radiology is all about. Imaging and image-guided intervention. Yep. Yeah. So the point being that um, like any business, there's going to be things that drive margin, things that don't drive margin, things that consume resources. But together, you need all the elements to really offer your consummate product. And I, I believe that's true of IR services as well as um, uh, some of the diagnostic services we provide. Yeah, I think that's 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 very well put. I mean, you know, you know, again, not to pick on anybody, but uh, you know, doing a, a, an upper GI may not be the most RVU intensive procedure. However, if you were opening a practice and you said, "I'm sorry, we're not offering any fluoro," that's just not going to work. It, it's it's a, I think what in the retail industry they call it a loss leader or something like that. That you you have to have that service, and I think it's it's my impression anyway. I don't know what you think that. Um, some of the smaller practices are where this kind of rubber really hits the road, where there's an issue, um, where there aren't perhaps enough radiologists of any flavor uh, to, to cover all the services, and therefore one or another specialty may uh, voice the feeling of being left out or being overworked or their RVUs uh, alone don't describe their story you know, or their value. Um, that kind of a thing. So I, I don't know. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Uh, no, that's exactly right. The um, I often think of um, 
I often think of airplanes when I think of these things because if you're riding in a big airplane, you can walk around in the airplane and the airplane flies nice and steady and straight because it's just because of its size. And if you're yeah. in a little airplane, you can't even even seat you in the right spot to make sure that the plane is, is level when it flies. And so the smaller the, the airplane, the more susceptible it is to bounce around with, with turbulence. And um, maybe I'm carrying this analogy a little too far, but the point yeah, being it. that it's more, much more susceptible to variations in, in productivity, for example. And if, a, if one of the mouths that needs to be fed from the overall pie, i.e. the interventionalist, isn't able to generate revenue that they're hoping that that person will generate because there's not the it's it's much more susceptible to variations in, in, mm-hmm. in that scale. Then that's where these pressure these pressures come from, I think. And so the bigger the size, the the less susceptible to those kind of variations one will see. And that's a, that is one reason among many why I do think IR and DR are better together because yeah. it increases the size of the airplane and you're going to be yeah. less susceptible to those troubles. Very well put, and I think certainly uh, in DR, but but I think even sometimes more in IR, there's so much competition for services from other specialties that having a bigger airplane, as you put it, um, mm-hmm. makes it easier to fly through those rough winds, you know, <laughs> um, and and uh, being able to synergize your offerings um, makes you kind of like a bigger player um, and, and and so on and so forth. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there are at least some people who think that IR and DR shouldn't be together, that they, that they should be separate. And I think, you know, that probably comes from both sides. I happen to hear it more from the IR side just by virtue of my training. What, what's your take on valid uh, points behind it or not? Is it even possible in your mind to have a, subs, a totally completely separate specialty known as IR that is no longer tied to DR? Is that something that could even work? I, I did get that. I did hear some of that perspective through either preparing for the town hall or on the town hall. And um, again, I'm respectful of everyone's. Of course, view. there's no right right or wrong answer. However, uh, in my own from my own perspective, I've seen in other domains smaller groups wanting to split off from larger groups and then either being denied the opportunity, never never mind IRDR, but just in, in general, being either denied that opportunity in academic medical centers, being denied that opportunity or doing so and then really struggling to um, gain the stature and um, credibility as a much smaller unit. And it, it, it occurs in so many different um, elements. So for example, just a, one top of mind one that comes to mind in an academic center is the number of the distribution of rank within the faculty of a unit. So how many professors are there? How many associates? How many assistants? And how many instructors are there? Well, in, in other departments I've seen, never mind radiology for, for a moment, but just in some other departments where I've seen a surgical subspecialty split off and become its own department, it can take years before it gets the stature of even having one professor or two professors or what have you. And it's a big deal when they finally get a professor. And boy, though their their ability to be actually be represented in all the things that require a professor to represent them uh, is um, is quite limited, and that's that's just one of many examples. Whether it be the impact of just the total revenue that's brought in, the clout that comes with that, the grant funding, boots on the ground that that carry the the weight of just the power of sheer numbers of people. Yeah, agreed. And and I th- I think that. You know, goes back to that uh, airplane analogy as well. On you know, on, at maybe smaller or community hospitals, you know, maybe it comes down uh, to resources where you know specialties A, B, and C 
are using the room. And if you're just a separate IR specialty, you may not have the legs to stand on as good as you may be and as, as wonderful services you may as you may provide to be able to sort of get those resources available to you as well. Whereas living together in a larger airplane or a larger group, uh, you may have you may have the uh, the uh, firepower, if that's the right word, to negotiate that and say, well, listen, we need the room for these hours. And so it's interesting. I mean, it's a it's an interesting argument um, from uh, as you said. I mean, no one is right and no one is wrong on this. There's there's certainly a, a lot to be said. Although um, I think probably, and I, I you know I'm, I'm only speaking for me. Um, I I think. You know, there's a feeling that you'd like this to work out together. You know, you'd, you'd kind of just like this to be okay. <laughs> so I don't want to underestimate, underrepresent the power of image-guided intervention as well, that, that advances in imaging as applied to intervention help continue to differentiate us and make us um, unique and, and, and allow us to offer more than those who aren't don't have imaging um, expertise in their armamentarium. And even though you may say, well, gee, I'm trained as a radiologist, so I've got that expertise. Why do I need to still to be connected to a radiology department for the next 30 years? And the answer is because our field is innovating all the time. And that new opportunities for diagnostic and innovation with diagnostic imaging can very much be ported to the interventional space. And we see that all the time, whether it be new technologies for MR, MR-guided uh, intervention new technologies for hybrid rooms and um, what, you know, the, the advances in diagnostic imaging that might help guide interventional procedures. And so these are the, why I do think that maintaining that connection will serve the profession well over the length, the arc of one's career, not just at the beginning of the career. Yeah, that's that's another really good point. And that has been, it's been very well demonstrated that, um, you know, I think these these advances have sort of co-driven both the IR and the DR side and, you know, probably sort of answers the question better together. Well, yeah, so far it seems that way, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And um, I think lots of people have very valid issues to raise. And it's a question of, as you've been able to do in your setting, maybe bridging those gaps and uh, figuring out a way to have people's needs addressed while still moving together as as one group. I think that one thing that practices can do to help ensure against these kind of schisms or the the, the tensions that lead to these kind of schisms is to um, make sure that all, as much as possible, I realize that these are not always doable, but as much as possible that the the practitioners in a practice, i.e. the radiologists and the diagnostic and interventional radiologists in a given practice, are empowered to practice within their specialty as much as possible. In general, I think that as much as our radiologists can practice in their in the in the subspecialty to which they're trained, the better for everybody, the better for our patients, but the better for the satisfaction of, the, of our radiologists. And so, um, if an interventional radiologist has capacity, you know, far better to try and expand the, the, the volume to meet that capacity opportunity, and whether it be taking on a, a new OBL or looking for new opportunities for growth, um, rather than necessarily trying to uh, fit that um, a peg in a square hole or around, you know, uh, you know, into a, have that person try and do diagnostic work that they may not have done for quite some time. Or, um, and so that, that's certainly been more of my mindset is that let's leverage the talents of the people we've got in the, the best way possible 
rather than trying to morph them into something that they haven't done in a long time or isn't may not have been their passion uh, to begin with. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and, and I think perhaps it's some of the, again, maybe some of the smaller community hospitals in that kind of setting is, is where you see that arise, where you've got, you know, maybe three or four radiologists covering multiple modalities and multiple uh, areas, which may, as you said, may not be their area of expertise. And um, I think that speaks in some ways in, you know, in a larger way to the sort of shortage of radiologists that, that, that yeah. we're seeing and, and addressing that. You know, there's one other, one other topic we haven't touched on yet, if I, if I might, uh, if you don't mind, is the topic of longitudinal care. And um, mm -hmm. this was another thing I thought was a, an interesting tidbit from the podcast is that um, I got the sense that some people were really viewing longitudinal care as being more in the domain of the independent IR practitioner and not so much in the domain of the IR who's tied to a DR practice. And again, this is something that I think um, is important for DR practices to recognize the value and importance of longitudinal care for the health of that IR practice. And I, uh, about starting a couple years ago, I started telling my own leaders of IR here that I felt like if I if I look back on my own career as an as a hospital or a department chairman, I have probably underinvested in longitudinal care, and I've I've told my my division chiefs for IR that I want to invest more in longitudinal care now with pre and post procedural services, um, uh, and lo looking to expand our clinic space and so forth. And I, I I reached that conclusion based on a variety of factors, but mostly recognizing that the other practitioners who do our procedures or that offer competing technologies to what we offer have a Longitudinal care is just much more inherent in their in their workflow. It's the the clinic that um, uh, whether it be a urologist or a pulmonologist or what have you, their inherent workflow of, of their practice is all about longitudinal care, the pre-procedural and post-procedural care. And that's something we just don't we haven't built into our practices nearly to the same degree. And so um, I'm a strong believer that. It shouldn't be the responsibility of the independent IR practitioner to make sure that longitudinal care is provided. It should be all of our responsibilities, whether you're in an IR independent IR practice or part of a IRDR practice. That's I think you're you're right, and and that's a very enlightened view, I must say. Um, and you're right. There's there's a, a critical element to the procedure that isn't that isn't technical and doesn't have anything to do with the procedure itself. And it is that longitudinal care. We really owe it to our patients uh, to provide that. And um, I think that's a, a big part. And again, hard to cover with RVUs. It's hard, it's hard to tell that story with RVUs, um, but it's, it's part of what we need to be able to provide. Um, so yeah, no, that's, that's a, a, a really important point. And I think, again, shows a lot of um, insight into you know how how IR is, and I think it's great that uh, uh, your IR leaders are being are reminded to to provide that, which is which is so necessary. Boy, it's been a it's been a great uh, talk with you. Really, really appreciate it. Um, I know you, you mentioned uh, before that your your kids were giving you tips on uh, teams and 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 all that. Um, I don't know uh, you know what, what your kids do, but if, if if any of them decided they wanted to go into interventional radiology. Would you tell them to look at an IR physician alone or an IR DR practice, or how, how would you, if that ever would to come up, that kind of thing? 
you know, anyone who has uh, young adult children knows um, you never tell them what to do, right? So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's a good, that's, you know? that's the best take-home point I think for Mr. Might I might try to engage in a conversation about the pros and cons of both, and it would sound a lot like this uh, the last twenty minutes. Uh, probably. Um, again, I don't see the world in such absolutes, and that there may be very good reasons to go into a, a OBL that's a standalone IR practice. Um, but um, at least it would be important for my kids and I'm sure all, everyone else to just to be, consider all those factors. And again, when it comes down to the how to, to know what is the right way to go, again, I can't emphasize enough how important it is just to think about it from that patient's perspective because all other extraneous forces being what they are, the one thing that, will, that, that won't tip is just what's best for the patient. If you keep thinking in those terms, that's not going to tip. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas whether it's this um, political wind or that economic factor or whatever, mm -hmm. those, those change. And um, you, you might end up on the, on the wrong side of a bad decision uh, if you base it too much on those things that are much more uh, fly-by-night. It's really, really good wisdom. And, and uh, I think you know what you said, to, to perhaps not see the world in such absolutes, I think is a really good way for all of us as radiologists to approach this issue. Anyway, Jim, I want to really again thank you again for all your time and wish you all the best. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. That was Dr. Jim Brink explaining his view on the balance between IR and DR in a radiology practice. We thank Dr. Brink and Dr. Krakow for their time and you for listening to the King Choir. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at kinkwire at serwap.org.